Hello, Ratchet Book Club listeners. Before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the legal right to have a safe and legal abortion. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. This decision can also lead to the loss of other rights. To learn more about what you can do to help, go to podvoices.help. I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 80. The morning that it happened was bright and blue in March, two months after Barty took Angel for a dry walk in wet weather, seven weeks after Celestina married Wally and five weeks after the happy newlyweds completed their purchase of the Galloway house next door to the Lampian place. Selma Galloway, retired from a professorship years earlier, had subsequently retired further, taking advantage of the equity in her long-owned home to buy a little condo on the beach in nearby Carlsbad. Celestina looked out a kitchen window and saw Agnes in the Lampian driveway, where the three-vehicle caravan was assembled. She was loading her station wagon. After moving all of a hundred feet, Celestina and Wally, with Grace fretting that someone would be hurt, had torn down the high stave fence between properties, for theirs had become one family with many names, Lampian, White, Lipscomb, Isaacson. When backyards were joined and a connecting walkway poured, Barty's travels from house to house were greatly simplified, and regular visits by the Gonzales, Damascus, and Vanadium branches of the clan were also facilitated. Agnes has a jump on us, Mom. At the open kitchen door, arms laden with a stack of four bakery boxes, her mother said, Will you get those last four pies for me there on the table? And don't jostle them, dear. Oh, that's me, all right. I'm on the FBI's most wanted list for criminal pie jostling. Well, you ought to be, Grace said, taking her pies out to the suburban that Wally had bought solely for this enterprise. Trying not to be a wicked jostler, Celestina followed. Filled with the songs of swallows that evidently preferred these precincts to the more famous address of San Juan Capistrano, this mild March morning was perfect for pie deliveries. Agnes and Grace had produced a bakery's worth of glorious vanilla almond pies and coffee toffee pies. Under Celestina's guidance, the menfolk, Wally, Edom, Jacob, Paul, Tom, had packed cartons of canned and dry goods, plus numerous boxes of new spring clothing for the children on their route. All those items had been loaded into the vehicle the previous evening. Easter still lay a few weeks away, but already Celestina had begun decorating more than a hundred baskets, so that nothing would need to be done at that last minute except add the candy. Her living room was a warren of baskets, ribbons, bows, beads, bangles. Shreddish cellophane and green and purple and pink and yellow, and decorative little plush toy bunnies and baby chicks. She devoted half her work time to the neighbors in need route that Agnes had established and steadily expanded, the other half to her painting. She was in no rush to mount a new show anyway. She didn't dare renew contact with the Greenbound Gallery or anyone at all from her past life until the police found Enoch Kane. Truly, the time spent helping Agnes had given her uncountable new subjects for painting and had begun to bring her work to a new depth that excited her. When you pour out your pockets into the pockets of others, Agnes had once said, you just wind up richer in the morning than you were the night before. 
As Celestina and her mother loaded the last of the pies into the ice chest in the Suburban, Paul and Agnes came back from her station wagon at the head of the caravan. Ready to roll? Agnes asked. Paul checked the back of the Suburban, since he fancied himself the wagon master. He wanted to be sure that the goods were loaded in such a way that they were unlikely to slide or to be damaged. Pack tight. Looks just fine, he declared, and closed the tailgate door. From her Volkswagen bus in the middle of the line, Maria joined them. In case we get separated, Agnes, I don't have an itinerary. Wagon Master Damascus at once produced one. Where's Wally? Maria asked. In answer, Wally came running with his heavy medical bag, as he was now doctored to some people on a pie route. The weather's a lot better than I expected, so I went back to changing the lighter clothes. Even a cool day on the pie route could produce a good sweat by journey's end. Because with the addition of the men to this ambitious project, they now not only made deliveries, but also performed some chores that were a problem for the elderly or disabled. Let's roll them out, Paul said, and he returned to the station wagon to ride shotgun beside Agnes. And the suburban with Wally and Grace, as they waited to hit the trail, Celestina said, he took her to a movie again, Tuesday night. Wally said, who? Paul? Who else? I think there's romance in the air. The cow-eyed way he looks at her, she can knock his knees out from under him just by giving him a wink. Don't gossip, Grace admonished from the back seat. You're one to talk, Celestina said. Who was it who told us they were sitting hand in hand on the front porch swing? That wasn't gossip, Grace insisted. I was just telling you that Paul got the swing repaired and rehung. Girl, that wasn't gossip. I was just telling you that I saw somebody weird walking into the next door neighbor's house and it wasn't her husband. Girl, that wasn't gossip. I was just telling you that somebody who threw the first punch wasn't your cousin. Girl, that wasn't gossip. I was just saying that our man was at my house yesterday, but I don't know nothing else about... Okay, I said too much. And when you were shopping with her and she bought him that sports shirt just for no reason at all because she thought he looked nice in it. I only told you about that, said Grace, because it was a very handsome shirt and I thought you might want to get one for Wally. Oh, Wally, I am worried. I am deeply worried. My mama's going to buy herself a first class ticket to the fiery pit if she doesn't stop this prevaricating. I give it three months, Grace said, before he proposes. Turning in her seat, grinning at her mother, Celestina said, One month. If he and Agnes were your age, I'd agree. But she's got ten years on you, and he's got twenty, and no previous generations were as wild as yours. Marrying white men and everything, Wally teased. Exactly, Grace replied. <laughs> I was just joking, Grace. <laughs> oh, were you, though? White man, where we do that at? <laughs> Up in Oregon, I wasn't even allowed in the city until like three years ago. <sighs> Five weeks maximum, Salasina said, revising her prediction upward. Ten weeks, her mother countered. What could I win, Salasina asked. I'll do your share of the housework for a month. If I'm closer to the date, you clean all my pie baking and other kitchen messes for a month. The bowls and the pans and mixers, everything. Deal. At the head of the line, Paul waved the red handkerchief out the window of the station wagon. Shipped in a suburban out of park, Wally said, I didn't know Baptists indulge in wagering. This isn't wagering, Grace declared. That's right, Celestina told Wally. This isn't wagering. What's wrong with you? If it isn't wagering, he wondered, what is it? Grace said, Mother and daughter bonding. Yeah, bonding, Celestina agreed. The station wagon rolled out. The Volkswagen bus followed it, and Wally brought up the rear. Wagons ho, he announced. The morning that it happened, Barty ate breakfast in a Lampian kitchen with Angel, Uncle Jacob, and two brainless friends. Jacob cooked cornbread, cheese and parsley omelets, and crisp home fries with a dash of onion salt. The round table seat is six, but they required only three chairs because the two brainless friends were a pair of angels' dolls. 
While Jacob ate, he browsed through a new coffee table book on dam disasters. He talked more to himself than Barty and Angel, as he spot-read the text and looked at the pictures. Oh my, he was saying in sonorous tones, or sadly, sadly, oh the horror of it. Or what indignation, criminal, criminal that it was built so poorly. Sometimes, he clucked his tongue in his cheek, or sighed and groaned in commiseration. Being blind had a few consolations, but Barty found that not being able to look at his uncle's files and books was one of them. In the past, he never really, in his heart, wanted to see those pictures of dead people roasted in theater fires and drowned bodies floating in flooded streets, but a few times he peeked. His mom would have been ashamed of him if she discovered his transgression. But the mystery of death had an undeniable creepy allure, and sometimes a good Father Brown detective story simply didn't satisfy his curiosity. He always regretted looking at those photos and reading the grim accounts of disaster, and now blindness spared him that regret. With Angel at the table, instead of just Uncle Jacob, at least Barty had someone to talk to, even if she did insist on speaking more often through her dolls than directly. Apparently, the dolls were on the table, propped up with bowls. The first, Miss Pixie Lee, had a high-pitched, squeaky voice. The second, Miss Velveeta Cheese, spoke in a three-year-old's idea of what a throaty-voiced, sophisticated woman sounded like. Although to Barty's ear, this is more suitable to a stuffed bear. You look very, very handsome this morning, Mr. Barty, squeaked Pixie Lee, who was something of a flirt. You look like a big movie star. Are you enjoying your breakfast, Pixie Lee? I wish we could have kicks or Cheerios with chocolate milk. Well, Uncle Jacob doesn't understand kids. Anyway, this is pretty good stuff. Jacob grunted, but probably not because he had heard what had been said about him. More likely because he had just turned the page to find a photo of a dead cattle piled up like driftwood against the American Legion Hall in some flood-ravaged town in Arkansas. Outside, engines fired up, and the pie caravan pulled out of the driveway. In my home in Georgia, we eat Fruit Loops with chocolate milk for dinner. Everyone in your home must have the trots. What are the trots? Diarrhea. What's dia- what, what you said? Non-stop, uncontrollable pooping. You're gross, Mr. Barty. No one in Georgia has trots. Previously, Miss Pixie Lee had been from Texas, but Angela recently heard that Georgia was famous for its peaches, which at once captured her imagination. Now Pixie Lee had a new life in a Georgia mansion carved out of a giant peach. I always eat caviar jar for breakfast, said Velveeta Cheese in her stuffed bear voice. That's caviar, Barty corrected. Don't you tell me how to say words, Mr. Barty. Okay, then, but you'll be an ignorant cheesehead. And I drink champagne on all day, said Miss Cheese, pronouncing it champagne on. I'd stay drunk, too, if my name were Velveeta Cheese. You look very handsome with your new eyes, Mr. Barty, Pixie Lee squeaked. His artificial eyes are almost a month old. He had been through surgery to have the eye-moving muscles attached to the conjunctiva, and everybody told him that the look and movement were absolutely real. In fact, they had told him this so often in the first week or two that he became suspicious and figured that his new eyes were totally out of control and spinning like pinwheels. Can we listen to a talking book after breakfast? asked Miss Velveeta Cheese. The one I'm about to start is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which is maybe pretty scary. We don't get scared. Oh, yeah? What about the spider last week? I wasn't scared of a dumb old spider, Angela insisted in her own voice. Then what was all that screaming about? I I just wanted everyone to come see the spider. That's all. It was a really, really icky, interesting bug. You were so scared you had the trots. If I ever have the trots, you'll know. And then, in the cheese voice, Can we listen to the book talk in your room? 
Angel liked to perch sideways with a drawing tablet in the window seat in Barty's room. Look out at the oak tree from the upper floor and draw pictures inspired by things she had heard in whatever book he was currently listening to. Everyone said she was a pretty good artist for a three-year-old, and Barty wished he could see how good she was. He wished he could see Angel, too, just once. Really, Angel, Barty said with genuine concern. It might be scary. I got another one we could listen to if you want. We want the scary one, especially if it has spiders, Pixie Lee said squeakily but defiantly. All right, the scary one. I sometimes even eat spiders with my caviar. Now who's being gross? The morning that it happened, Eden woke early from a nightmare about the roses. In the dream, he is 16, but racked by 30 years worth of pain. The backyard, summer, a hot day, the air is still and heavy as water in a quiet pool, sweet with the fragrance of jasmine. Under the huge spreading oak, Grass oiled to a glossy sheen by buttery sunshine, and emerald black where the shadows of limbs and leaves overlay it. Fat crows as black as scraps at night of linger long after dawn dart agitatedly in and out of the tree, from branch to branch, excited, shrieking, branch to branch, the flapping of wings is leathery, demonic. The only other sounds are the thuds of fists, hard blows, and his father's heavy breathing as he deals out the punishment. Edom himself lies face down the grass, silent because he's barely conscious, too badly beaten to protest or to plead for mercy, but also because even the cry in pain will invite more vicious discipline than the pummeling he's already endured. His father straddles him, driving big fists into his back, brutally into his sides. With high fences and hedgerows of Indian laurels on both sides of the property, the neighbors can't see. But some know, have always known and have less interest in the crows. Tumbled on the grass in fragments, the broken trophy for the prize rose, the symbol of his sinful pride, his one great shining moment, but also his sinful pride. Club with the trophy first, fist later, and now here, after he's rolled onto his back by his father. Here, now, roses by the fistful jammed into his face, crushed and ground against his face, thorns gouging his skin, piercing his lips. His father, oblivious of his own punctured wounds, trying to force open Edom's mouth. Eat your sin, boy. Eat your sin. Edom resists eating his sin, but he's afraid for his eyes, terrified, the thorns pricking so close to his eyes, green points combing his lashes. He's too weak to resist, disabled by the ferocity of the beating and by years of fear and humiliation. So he opens his mouth, just to end it, just to be done with it at last. He opens his mouth, let the roses be shoved in. The bitter green taste of the juice crushed from the stems, thorns sharp against his tongue. And then Agnes. Agnes in the yard, screaming, stop it, stop it! Agnes, only ten years old, slender and shaking, but wild with righteousness. Until now, held in thrall by her own fear, by the memory of all the beatings that she herself has taken. She screams at their father and strikes him with a book she's brought from the house. The Bible. She strikes their father with the Bible, from which he's read to them every night of their lives. He drops the roses, tears the holy book out of Agnes's hands, and pitches it across the yard. He rakes up a handful of the scattered roses, intending to make his son resume this dinner of sin. But here comes Agnes once more, the Bible recovered, brandishing it at him. And now she says what all of them know to be true, but none of them has ever dared say. What even Agnes herself will never again dare to say to this day. Not while the old man lives. But she dares to say it now, holding the Bible towards him, so he can see the gold embossed cross upon the imitation leather cover. Murderer, Agnes says. Murderer. And Edom knows they're all good as dead now that their father will slaughter them right here, right this minute, in his rage. Murderer, she says accusingly, behind the shield of the Bible, and she doesn't mean that he is killing Edom, but that he killed their mother, that they heard him in the night three years before, heard the short but awful struggle, and know what happened was no accident. Roses fall from his skinned and pierced hands, a flurry of petals yellow and petals red.
He rises and takes a step towards Agnes, his dripping fist crimson with his blood and with Edom's. Agnes doesn't back away, but thrusts the book towards him, and scintillant sunshine caresses the cross. Instead of tearing the book out of her hands again, their father stalks away, into the house, surely to return with club or cleaver. Yet they'll see no more of him this day. Then Agnes, with tweezers for the thorns, with a basin full of warm water and a washcloth, with iodine and neosporin and bandages, kneels beside him in the yard. Jacob, too, comes forth from the dark crawl space under the porch, having watched in terror from behind the latticework skirt. He is shaking, crying, flushed with embarrassment because he didn't intervene, although he was wise to hide, for the disciplinary beating of one twin usually leads to the pointless beating of the other. Agnes gradually settles Jacob by involving him in the treatment of his brother's wounds, and to Edom, she says, often thereafter, I love you, Roses, Edom. I love your roses. God loves your roses, Edom. Overhead, agitated wings quiet to a soft flutter, and the shrieking crows grow silent. The air pools as still and heavy as the water in a hidden lagoon within a secret glade, in the perfect garden of the unfallen. At nearly 40 years of age, Edom still dreamed of that grim summer afternoon, although not as often as in the past. When it troubled his sleep these days, it was a nightmare that gradually metamorphed into a dream of tenderness and hope. Until the last few years, he had always awakened when the roses were being jammed into his mouth or when the thorns flicked through his eyelashes, or when Agnes began to strike their father with the Bible, thus seeming to assure worse punishment. This additional act, this transition from horror to hope before he woke, had been added when Agnes was pregnant with Barty. Edom didn't know why this should be so, and he didn't try and analyze it. He was simply grateful for the change, because he woke now in a state of peace, never with worse than a shudder, no longer with a hoarse cry of anguish. On this morning in March, minutes after the pie caravan had departed, Edom got his four country squire out of the garage and drove to the nursery, which opened early. Spring was drawing near, and much work needed to be done to make the most of the rosarium that Joey Lampion had encouraged him to restore. He happily contemplated hours of browsing through plant stock, tools, and gardening supplies. The morning that it happened, Tom Vanadian rose later than usual, shaved, showered, and then used the telephone in Paul's downstairs study to call Max Bellini in San Francisco and to speak as well with authorities in both the Oregon State Police and Spruce Hills Police Department. He was uncharacteristically restive. His stoic nature, his long-learned Jesuit philosophy regarding the acceptance of events as they unfold, and the acquired patience of a homicide detective were insufficient to prevent frustration from taking root in him. In the more than two months since Enoch came vanished, following the murder of Reverend White, no trace of the killer had been found. Week by week, the slender sapling of frustration had grown into a tree and then into a forest until Tom began every morning by looking out through the tightly woven branches of impatience. Because of the events regarding Barty and Angel back in January, Celestina, Grace, and Wally were no longer displaced persons waiting to return to San Francisco. They had begun anew here in Bright Beach, and judging by all indications, they were going to be as happy and as occupied with useful work as it was possible to be on this troubled side of the grave. Tom himself had decided to build a new life here as well, assisting Agnes with her ever-expanding work. He was not yet sure whether this would include the rededication to his vows and a return to the Roman collar, or whether he would spend the rest of his days in civvies. He was delaying that decision until the Kane case was resolved. He couldn't take much longer to take advantage of Paul Damascus's hospitality. Since bringing Wally to town, Tom had been staying in Paul's guest room. He knew that he was welcome indefinitely, and the sense of family that he had found with these people had only grown since January. But nevertheless, he felt like he was imposing. The calls of Bellini in San Francisco and the others in Oregon were made with a prayer for news, but the prayer went unanswered. Cain had not been seen, heard from, smelled, intuited, or located by the pestering clairvoyants who had attached themselves to the sensational case. Adding new growth to his force of frustration, Tom got up from the study desk, fetched the newspaper from the front doorstep, 
and went to the kitchen to make his morning coffee. He boiled up a pot of strong brew and sat down at the knotty pine table with a steaming mug full of black and sugarless solace. He almost opened the paper atop the quarter before seeing it. Shiny. Liberty curved across the top of the coin, above the head of the Patriot, and under the Patriot's chin were stamped the words, In God We Trust. Tom Vanadian was no alarmist, and the most logical explanation came to him first. Paul had wanted to learn how to roll a quarter across his knuckles, and in spite of being dexterously challenged, he practiced hopefully from time to time. No doubt he had sat at the table this morning, or even last evening before bed, dropping the coin repeatedly until he exhausted his patience. Wally had disposed of his properties in San Francisco under Tom's careful supervision. Any attempt to trace him from the city to Bright Beach would fail. His vehicles were purchased through a corporation, and his new house had been bought through a trust named after his late wife. Celestina, Grace, even Tom himself, had taken extraordinary measures to leave no slightest trail. Those very few authorities who knew how to reach Tom and through him the others were acutely aware that his whereabouts and phone number must be tightly guarded. The quarter, silvery, under the Patriot's neck, the date, 1965. Coincidentally, the year that Naomi had been killed, the year that Tom had first met Cain, the year this had all begun. When Paul practiced the quarter trick, he usually did so on the sofa or in an armchair and always in a room with carpeting because when dropped on a hard surface, the coin rolled and required too much chasing. From a cutlery drawer, Tom withdrew a knife, the largest and sharpest blade in the small collection. He had left his revolver upstairs in a nightstand. Certain that he was overreacting, Tom nevertheless left the kitchen as a cop, not a priest, would leave it. Staying low, knife thrust in front of him, clearing the door frame fast. Kitchen to dining room, dining room to hallway, keeping his back to the wall, easing quickly along, then to the foyer. Wait here, listening. Tom was alone. The place should be silent. Hannah Ray, the housekeeper, wasn't scheduled to arrive until 10 o'clock. A deep storm of silence, anti-thunder, the house fully drenched in a muffling rain of soundlessness. The search for Kane was secondary. Getting to the revolver took priority. Regain the gun and then proceed room by haunted room to hunt him down. Hunt him down if he was here and if Kane didn't do the hunting first. Tom climbed the stairs. Uncle Jacob Cook and babysitter and connoisseur of watery death cleaned off the table and washed the dishes while Barty patiently endured a rambling post-breakfast conversation with Pixie Lee and Miss Velveeta Cheese, whose name wasn't an honorary title earned by winning a beauty contest sponsored by Kraft Foods the first thought, but who, according to Angel, was the good sister to the rotten line cheese man in the television commercials. Dishes dried and put away. Jacob retired to the living room and settled contentedly into one armchair, where he would probably become so enthralled with his new book of damn disasters that he would forget to make luncheon sandwiches until Barty and Angel rescued him from the flooded streets of some dismally unfortunate town. Done with dolls for now, Barty and Angel went upstairs to his room, where the book that talked waited patiently in silence. With her colored pencils and a large pad of drawing paper, she clambered onto the cushioned window seat. Barty sat up in bed and switched on the tape player that stood on the nightstand. The words of Robert Louis Stevenson, well read, poured another time and placed into the room as smoothly as lemonade pouring from pitcher in the glass. An hour later, when Barty decided he wanted a soda, he switched off the book and asked Angela if she would like something to drink. The orange stuff, she said. I'll get it. Sometimes Barty could be fierce in his independence, his mother told him so, and now he rebuffed Angel too sharply. I don't want to be waited on. I'm not helpless, you know. I can get sodas myself. You know, it dawned on me, just now, as I'm reading this to y'all. Barty is three. Angel is three. Yet I always have attributed a different voice in my head and is carrying over to this script. To this show, rather. To Barty. I've always attributed an older voice to him. Like he's an older soul because his mom said it somewhere. But really, it's... I don't want to be waited on. I'm not helpless, you know. I can get sodas myself. But I feel like that takes away 
from the story. You know, I don't I don't know. I don't want to be waited on. I'm not helpless, you know. I can get sodas myself. By the time he reached the doorway, he felt sorry for his tone, and he looked back towards where the window seat must be. Angel? What? I'm sorry. I was rude. Boy, I sure know that. They both talk really well for three-year-olds, don't they? Like, really well. Like, that's maybe the one thing. The one thing in this book that's just like, mm, okay. Like, they talking like this at the age of three. Like, okay, buddy. When my son was three, you know what his favorite word was? It was a made-up word that was like, doot. I don't know what doot meant. I still don't know what doot is. I spelled it D-O-O-T. But when he was three, that was his word, doot. And they're talking about, I'm sorry, I was rude. I'm not helpless, you know. I can get sodas myself. I mean, I know he's smart, and I know he's read a lot of books, and books open up your vocabulary, but Angel has been listening to these books for maybe two months, three? And all of a sudden, she's talking like that? Like, she's been talking like that, asking questions. Like, she's asking questions like puppies and pigs and all that kind of stuff. Like, I've seen, I've seen horses talk on TV. It just seems more like they tailored her more to being a three-year-old than Barty to being a three-year-old. And I, I keep that in mind now as I read this book and it just hits differently. Angel? What? I'm sorry. I, I was rude. Boy, I sure know that. I mean, just now. Not just now, either. When else? With Miss Pixie and Miss Velveeta. Sorry about that, too. All right, she said. As Barty stepped across the threshold into the upstairs hall, Miss Pixie Lee said, You're sweet, Barty. He sighed. Would you like to be my boyfriend? Asked Miss Velveeta, who had thus far shown no romantic inclinations. I'll think about it, Barty said. Along the hall, every step measured, he stayed near the wall furthest from the staircase. In his mind, he carried a blueprint of the house more precisely drawn than anything that might have been prepared by an architect. He knew the place to the inch, and he adjusted his pace and all his mental calculations every month to compensate for his steady growth. So many paces from here to there. Every turn and every peculiarity of the floor plan committed indelibly to memory. A journey like this was a complicated mathematical problem, but being a math prodigy, he moved through his home almost as easily as when he had enjoyed sight. He didn't rely on sounds to help him find his way, though here and there one served as a marker of his progress. Twelve paces from his room, a floorboard squeaked almost inaudibly under the hallway carpet, which told him that he was 17 paces from the head of the stairs. He didn't need that muffled creak to know exactly where he was, but it always reassured him. Six paces past that marker floorboard, Barty had the strangest feeling that someone was in the hallway with him. He didn't rely either on a sixth sense to detect obstacles or open spaces, which some blind people claimed to have. Sometimes instinct told him that in his path was an object that ordinarily would not have been there. But as often as not, it went undetected, and unless he was using his cane, he tripped over it. The sixth sense was greatly overrated. If someone were here in the hallway with him, it couldn't be Angel, because she would be chattering enthusiastically in one voice or another. Uncle Jacob would never tease him like this, and no one else was in the house. Nevertheless, he stepped away from the wall, and with his hands extended to full arm's length, he turned, feeling the lightless world around him. Nothing. No one. Shaking off this peculiar case of the spooks, Barty proceeded towards the stairs. Just when he reached the newel post, he heard the faint creak of the marker floorboard behind him. He turned, blinking his plastic eyes, and said, Hello? No one answered. Houses made settling noises all the time. That was one reason why he couldn't rely much on sound to guide him through the darkness. A noise he thought had been made by the weight of his tread might as easily have been produced by the house itself as it adjusted to the weather or to its age. 
Hello? He said again, and still no one answered. Convinced that the house was playing tricks on him, Barty went downstairs, step by measured step, to the foyer and the ground floor hall. As he passed the living room archway, he said, Watch out for tidal waves, Uncle Jacob. Captivated by catastrophe, so lost in this book that he might as well have stepped magically inside of it and closed the covers after himself, Uncle Jacob didn't answer. Barty paced off the downstairs hallway to the kitchen, thinking about Dr. Jekyll and the hideous Mr. Hyde. Chapter 81 Left hand on the banister, right hand with knife tucked close to his side and ready to thrust. Tom Vanadium climbed cautiously but quickly to the upper floor, glancing back twice to be sure the cane didn't slip in behind him. Along the hall to his room, fast and low through the door frame, wary of the closet door standing two inches ajar. All the way to the nightstand, he expected to discover that the revolver had been taken from the drawer. Yet, here it was, loaded. He dropped the knife and snatched up the handgun. Almost 30 years from the seminary, even farther from it if measured by degrees of lost innocence, by miles of rough experience, Tom Vanadium set out to kill a man. Given the chance to disarm Cain, given the opportunity to merely wound him, he would nevertheless go for the headshot or the heart shot, play jury and executioner, play God, and leave to God the judgment of a stained soul. Room to room through the upstairs, checking closets, behind furniture, bathrooms, and Paul's private spaces. No cane. Down the stairs, through the ground floor, quickly, soundlessly, breath held at times, listening for the other's breathing, listening for the softest squeak of rubber sole shoes though the hard clack of cloven hooves and a whiff of sulfur would not have been surprising. At last, he went to the kitchen, full circle from the shiny quarter on the breakfast table, to the quarter again. No cane. Perhaps these two months of frustration had brought him to this. Hair-triggered nerves, fevered imagination, and anticipation distilled into dread. He might have felt properly foolish if he had not suffered so much personal experience of Enoch Kane. This was a false alarm, but considering the nature of the enemy, it wasn't a bad idea to put himself through a drill from time to time. Laying the gun on the newspaper, he dropped into the chair. He picked up his coffee. The search of the house had been conducted with such urgency that the java was still pleasantly hot. Holding the mug in his right hand, Tom picked up the coin and rolled it across the knuckles of his left. Paul's quarter, after all. A two-bit temptation to panic. As gifted with physical grace as with good looks, Junior stepped into the bedroom doorway, lively and with feline stealth. He leaned against the jam. Across the room, the girl in the window seat showed no awareness of his arrival. She sat sideways to him in the niche, with her back against one wall, knees drawn up, a big sketch pad braced against her thighs, working intently with colored pencils. Through the big window beyond her, the charry branches of the massive oak tree formed a black cat's cradle against the sky, leaves quivering slightly, as though nature itself trembled in trepidation of what Junior Kane might do. Indeed, the tree inspired him. After he shot the girl, he would open the window and toss her body into the oak. Let Celestina find her there, randomly pierced by branches in a freestyle crucifixion. His daughter, his affliction, his millstone, granddaughter of the boil-giving voodoo Baptist. After a surgeon had lanced 54 boils and cut the cords from the 31 most intractable, shaving the patient's head to get out the 12 that were festering on his scalp, and after three days of hospitalization to guard against staphylococcus infection, and after he had been turned back into the world as bald as Daddy Warbucks and with the promise of permanent scarring, Junior visited the Reno Library to catch up with current events. Reverend White's murder received significant coverage throughout the nation, especially in West Coast papers, because of its perceived racial motivation and because it involved the burning of a parsonage. Police identified Junior as a prime suspect, and newspapers featured his photograph in most stories. They referred to him as handsome, dashing, a man with movie star good looks, he was said to be known in San Francisco's avant-garde arts community. He got a thrill when he discovered that Sklint was quoted as calling him a charismatic figure, a deep thinker, a man with exquisite artistic taste. So clever, he could get away with murder as easily as anyone else might get away with double parking. 
It's people like him, Splint continued, who confirm the view of the world that informs my painting. It's not a good thing, Junior. Eeny, whatever. It's not a good thing. Like, this dude is painting evil, and you are informing his evil. I'm sure he's going to make a painting with your name on it in some case, some point. Junior found the acclaim gratifying, but the widespread use of his photograph was a high price to pay, even for the recognition of his contribution to art. Fortunately, with his bald head and pocked face, he no longer resembled the Enoch Kane for whom the authorities were searching. And they believed that the bandages on his face at the church had merely been an exotic disguise. One psychologist even speculated that the bandages had been an expression of the guilt and shame he felt on a subconscious level. Yeah, right. For Junior, 1968, the Chinese year of the monkey, would be the year of the plastic surgeon. He would require extensive dermabrasion to restore the smoothness and tone to his skin, to be as irresistibly kissable as he had been before. While at it, he would need surgery to make subtle changes in his features. Tricky. He didn't want to trade perfection for anonymity. He must take care to ensure that his post-surgery look, when he let his hair grow in and perhaps dyed it, would be as devastating to women as his previous appearance. According to the newspaper, the police also credited him with the murders of Naomi, Victoria Bressler, and Ned Nathick, whom they had connected to Celestina. He was wanted, too, for the attempted murder of Dr. Walter Lipscomb, evidently Ichabod, for the attempted murder of Grace White, for assault with intent to kill Celestina White and her daughter Angel, and for the assault on Lenora Kitmule, whose foxtail bedecked Pontiac he had stolen in Eugene, Oregon. He had visited the library primarily to confirm that Harrison White was unquestionably dead. He had shot the man four times. Two bullets in the gas tank of the stolen Pontiac destroyed the parsonage and should have incinerated the Reverend. When you were dealing with black magic, however, you can never be too cautious. After pouring through enough sensational newspaper accounts to be convinced that the curse-casting reverend was undeniably dead, Junior had acquired four pieces of surprising information. Three were of vital importance to him. First, Victoria Bressler was listed as one of his victims. Although as far as he knew, the authorities still had every reason to attribute her murder to Vanadium. Second, Thomas Vanadium received no mention. Therefore, his body hadn't been found in the lake. He still ought to be under suspicion in the Bressler case. And if new evidence cleared him of suspicion, then his disappearance should have been mentioned. And he should have been listed as another possible victim of the shamefaced slayer, the bandaged butcher, as the tabloids had dubbed Jr. Third, Celestina had a daughter. Not a boy named Bartholomew. Seraphim's baby had been a girl named Angel. This confused Jr. as much as it stunned him. Bressler, but no vanadium. A girl named Angel. Something was wrong here. Something was rotten. Fourth and last, he was surprised that Kick Mule was a legitimate surname. This information wasn't of immediate importance to him, but if ever his Gaminer and Pinchbeck identities were compromised and he required a false ID and a new name, he would call himself Eric Kick Mule. Or possibly Wolfgang Kick Mule. That sounded really tough. No one would mess with a man named Kick Mule. As to the distressing matter of Seraphim's daughter, Junior at first decided to return to San Francisco to torture the truth out of Nolly Wolston. Then he realized that he had been referred to Wolston by the same man who had told him that Thomas Vanadine was missing and was believed to be Victoria Bressler's killer. So after waiting two months for the super hot Harrison White case to cool down, Junior returned instead to Spruce Hills, traveled bald and pocked and passing his pinchback under the cover of night. Then quickly from Spruce Hills to Eugene by car, from Eugene to Orange County Airport by charter aircraft, from Orange County to Bright Beach in the stolen 68 Oldsmobile 442 Hearst. While the advantage of surprise remained with him. Carrying a newly acquired, silencer-fitted 9mm pistol, spare magazines of ammunition, three sharp knives, a police lock-release gun, and one piece of steaming luggage, Junior had arrived late the previous evening. He had quietly let himself into the Damascus house, where he stayed the night. He could have killed Vanadian while the cops slept. 
However, that will be far less satisfying than engaging in a little psychological warfare and leaving the devious bastard alive to suffer remorse when two more children died under his watch. Besides, Junior was reluctant to kill Vanadium, for real this time, and risked discovering that the detective's filthy, scabby monkey spirit would in fact prove to be a relentless, haunting presence that gave him no peace. The prickly bird ghosts of two little children didn't concern him. At worst, they are spiritual gnats. This morning, Damascus had left the house early, before Vanadium came downstairs, which was perfect for Junior's purposes. While the maniac cop was finishing his shave and shower, Junior crept upstairs to check his room. He discovered the revolver in the second of three places that he expected it to be, did his work, and returned the weapon to the nightstand drawer in precisely the position that he had found it. Narrowly avoiding an encounter with vanadium in the hall, he retreated to the ground floor. After some fussing over the most effective placement, he left the quarter and the luggage, just as Vanadium, the human stump, clumped down the stairs. Junior experienced an unexpected delay when the detective spent half an hour making phone calls from the study. But then Vanadium went into the kitchen, allowing him to slip out of the house and complete his work. Then he came directly here. Angel, on the window seat, wore nothing but white. White sneakers and socks. White pants. White t-shirt. Two white bows in her hair. To look entirely like her name, she needed only white wings. He would give her wings. A short flight out of the window, into the oak. Did you come to hear the book that talks? The girl asked. She hadn't looked up from her sketching. Although Junior thought she hadn't seen him, she apparently had been aware of him all along. Moving out of the doorway, into the bedroom, he said, What book would that be? Right now, it's talking about this crazy doctor. In her features, the girl entirely resembled her mother. She was nothing whatsoever like Junior. Only the light brown shade of her skin provided evidence that she hadn't been derived from seraphim by parthenogenesis. I don't like the old crazy doctor, she said, still drawing. I wish it was about bunnies on vacation, or maybe a toad learns to drive and has adventures. Where's your mother this morning, he asked for he'd expected to have to shoot his way through a lot more than one adult to reach both children. The Lipscomb house had proved empty, however, and Fortune had given him and the boy together with one guardian. She's driving the pies, Angel said. What's your name? Wolfgang Kickmule. That's a silly name. It's not silly at all. My name's Pixie Lee. Junior reached the window seat and stared down at her. I don't believe that's true. Truer than true, she insisted. Your name's not Pixie Lee, you little liar. Well, it's sure not Velveeta Cheese, and don't be rude. The various flavors of canned soda were always racked in the same order, allowing Barty to select what he wanted without error. He got orange for Angel, root beer for himself, and closed the refrigerator. Retracing his path across the kitchen, he caught a faint whiff of jasmine from the backyard. Funny, jasmine here inside. Two paces later, he felt a draft. He halted, made a quick calculation, turned, and moved towards where the back door ought to be. He found it half open. For reasons of mice and dust, doors at the Lampian house were never left ajar, let alone open this wide. Holding onto the jam with one hand, Barty leaned across the threshold, listening to the day. Birds. Softly rustling leaves. Nobody on the porch. Even trying hard to be quiet, people always made some little noise. Uncle Jacob? No answer. After nudging the door shut with his shoulder, Barty carried the sodas out of the kitchen and forward along the hall. Pausing at the living room archway, he said, Uncle Jacob? No answer. No little noises. His uncle wasn't there. Evidently, Jacob had made a quick trip to his apartment over the garage and with no thought for mice and dust, had not closed the back door. Junior said, You've caused me a lot of trouble, you know. He had been building a beautiful rage all night, thinking about what he had been through because of the girl's temptress mother, whom he saw so clearly in this pint-sized bitch. So much trouble. What do you think about dogs? What are you drawing there, he asked. Do they talk or don't they? I asked you what you're drawing. Something I saw this morning. 
still looming over her. He snatched the pad out of her hands and examined the sketch. Where would you have seen this? She refused to look at him, the way her mother refused to look at him when he had been making love to her in the parsonage. She began twisting a red pencil in a handheld sharpener, making sure that the shavings fell into a can kept for that purpose. I saw it here. Junior tossed a pad on the floor. Bullshit. We say bull duty in this house. Weird, this kid. Making him uneasy. All in white with her incomprehensible yammering about talking books and talking dogs and her mother driving pies and working on the damn strange drawing for a little girl. Look at me, Angel. Twisting, twisting, twisting the red pencil. I said, look at me. He slapped her hands, knocking the sharpener and the pencil out of her grasp. They clattered against the window, fell onto the window seat cushions. When still she didn't meet his stare, he seized her by the chin and tipped her head back. Terror in her eyes. And recognition. Surprised, he said, You know me, don't you? She said nothing. You know me, he insisted. Yeah, you do. Tell me who I am, Pixie Lee. After a hesitation, she said, You're the boogeyman, except when I saw you... I was hiding under the bed where you were supposed to be. How could you recognize me? No hair. This face. I see. See what? He demanded, squeezing her chin hard enough to hurt her. Because his pinching fingers deformed the shape of her mouth, her voice was compressed. I see all the ways you are. Tom Venetti was too unnerved by the cane scare to be interested in the newspaper anymore. The strong black coffee, superb before, tasted bitter now. He carried the mug to the sink, poured the brew down the drain, and saw the cooler standing in the corner. He hadn't noticed it before. A medium-sized, molded plastic, styrofoam-lined ice chest of the type you filled with beer and took on picnics. Paul must have forgotten something that he meant to take on the pie caravan. The lid of the cooler wasn't on as tight as it ought to have been. From around one edge slipped a thin and sinuous stream of smoke. Something on fire. By the time he got to the cooler, he could see this wasn't smoke after all. It dissipated too quickly, cool against his hand, the cold steam from dry ice. Tom removed the lid. No beer. One head. Simon Magison's severed head lay face up on the ice, mouth open as though he were standing in court to object to the prosecution's line of questioning. No time for horror. Disgust. Every second mattered now, and every minute might cost another life. To the phone. The police. No dial tone. Pointless a rattle the disconnect switch. The line had been cut. Neighbors might not be home, and by the time he knocked, asked to use a phone. Dialed. Too great a waste of time. Think. Think. A three-minute drive to the Lampion place, maybe two minutes running stop signs and cutting corners. Tom snatched the revolver off the table, the car keys from the pegboard, letting it bang shut behind him hard enough to crack the glass. Crossing the porch, Tom took the beauty of the day like a fist in the gut. It was too blue and too bright and too gorgeous to harbor death, and yet it did. Birth and death, alpha and omega, woven in a design to flaunt its meaning, but defied understanding. It was a blow, this day, a hard blow. Brutal in its beauty, and its simultaneous promises of transcendence and loss. The car stood in the driveway, as dead as the phone. Lord, help me here. Give me this one, just this one, and I'll follow thereafter where I'm led. I'll always thereafter be your instrument, but please, please give me this crazy, evil son of a bitch. Three minutes by car, maybe two without stop signs. He could just about run it as fast as drive it. He had a bit of a gut on him. He wasn't the man he used to be. Ironically, however, after the coma and the rehab, he wasn't as heavy as he had been before Kane sunk him in Quarry Lake. I see all the way you are. The girl was creepy, no doubt about it, and Junior felt now precisely as he had felt on the night of Celestina's exhibition at the Green Bomb Gallery. When he had come out of the alleyway after disposing of Nettie Nathic in the dumpster and had checked his watch only to discover his bare wrist. He was missing something here too. But it wasn't merely a Rolex. It wasn't a thing at all. But an insight. 
a profound truth. He let go of the girl's chin, and at once she scrunched into the corner of the window seat, as far away from him as she could get. The knowing look in her eye wasn't that of an ordinary child, not that of a child at all. Not his imagination either. Terror, yes, but also defiance and this knowing expression as though she could see right through him, knew things about him that she had no way of knowing. He fished the sound suppressor from a jacket pocket, drew the pistol from his shoulder holster, and began to screw the former to the latter. He misthreaded it at first, because his hands had begun to shake. Sklint came to mind, perhaps because of the strange drawing on the girl's sketch pad. Sklint at that Christmas Eve party, only a few months ago, but a lifetime away. The theory of spiritual afterlife without a need for God. Prickly birth spirits. Some hang around, haunting out of sheer mean stubbornness. Some fade away. Others reincarnate. His precious wife had fallen from the tower and died only hours before this girl was born. This girl. This vessel. He remembers standing in the cemetery, downhill from Seraphim's grave, although at the time he had known only that it was a negro being buried, not that it was his former lover, and thinking that the rains would over time carry the juices of the decomposing negro corpse into the lower grave that contained Naomi's remains. Had that been a half-psychic moment on his part? A dim awareness that another and far more dangerous connection between dead Naomi and dead Seraphim had already been formed? When the sound suppressor was properly attached to the pistol, Junior Kane leaned closer to the girl, peered in her eyes, and whispered, Naomi? Are you in there? Near the top of the stairs, Barty thought he heard voices in his bedroom, soft and indistinct. When he stopped to listen, the voices fell silent, or maybe he only imagined them. Of course, Angel might have been playing around with the talking book. Or, even though she left the dolls downstairs, she might have been filling the time until Barty's return by having a nice chat with Miss Pixie and Miss Velveeta. She had other voices too, for other dolls, and one for a sock puppet named Smelly. Granted that he was only three going on four, nevertheless Barty had never met anyone with as much cheerful imagination as Angel. He intended to marry her in, oh, maybe twenty years. Even prodigies didn't marry at three. Meanwhile, before they needed to plan the wedding, there was time for an orange soda and a root beer, and more of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He reached the top of the stairs and proceeded towards his room. After two years of rehabilitation, Tom had been pronounced as fit as ever, a miracle of modern medicine and willpower. But right now, he seemed to have been put back together with spit and string and scotch tape. Arms pumping, legs stretching, he felt every one of those eight months of coma in his withered and rebuilt muscles, and his calcium depleted and rebuilt bones. He ran gasping, praying, feet slapping the concrete sidewalk, frightening birds out of the purple brightness of blossom-laden jacarandas and out of Indian laurels, terrorizing a tree rat into a lightning sprint up the bowl of a phoenix palm. The few people he encountered reeled out of his way. Brakes shrieked as he crossed intersections without looking both ways, risking cars and trucks and rhinoceroses. Sometimes, in his mind, Tom wasn't running along the residential streets of Bright Beach, but along the corridor of the dormitory wing over which he had served as prefect. He was cast back in time to that dreadful night. A sound wakes him. A fragile cry. Thinking at a voice from his dream, he nevertheless gets out of bed, takes up a flashlight, and checks on his charges, his boys. Low-watered emergency lamps barely relieve the gloom in the corridor. The rooms are dark, doors ajar according to the rules, to guard against the dangerous stubborn locks in the event of fire. He listens. Nothing. Then into the first room. And into a hell on earth. Two small boys per room easily and silently overcome by a grown man with the strength of madness. In the sweep of the flashlight beam, the dead eyes, the wrenched faces, the blood. Another room, the flashlight jittering, jumping, and the carnage worse. Then in the hall again, movement in the shadows, Joseph Krepp captured by the flashlight. Joseph Krepp, the quiet custodian, Meek by all appearances, employed as St. Anselmo's for the past six months with nary a problem, with only good employee reviews attached to his record. Joseph Krepp, here in the corridor of the past, grinning and capering in the flashlight, wearing a dripping necklace of souvenirs. 
In the present, long after the execution of Joseph Krapp, half a block ahead lay the Lipscomb house. Beyond it, the Lampian place. A calico cat appeared at Tom's side, running, pacing him. Cats were witches' familiars. Good luck or bad, this cat. Here, now, the pie lady's house, the battleground. Naomi, are you in there? Junior whispered again, peering into the windows of the girl's soul. She wouldn't answer him, but he was as convinced by her silence as he would have been by a blurred confession, or by a denial for that matter. Her wild eyes convinced him too, and her trembling mouth. Naomi had come back to be with him, and it could be argued that Seraphim had returned in a sense too, for this girl was a flesh of Seraphim's flesh, born out of her death. Junior was flattered. He really was. Women couldn't get enough of him. The story of his life, they never let go gracefully. He was wanted, needed, adored, worshipped. Women kept calling after they should have taken the hint and gone away, insisted on sending him notes and gifts even after he told them it was over. Junior wasn't surprised the women would return from the dead for him. Nor was he surprised the women he killed would try to find a route back to him from beyond without malice, without vengeance in their hearts, merely yearning to be with him again, to hold him and to fulfill his needs. As gratified as he was by this tribute to his desirability, he simply didn't have any romantic feelings left for Naomi and Seraphim. They were the past, and he loathed the past, and if they wouldn't let him alone, he would never be able to live in the future. He pressed the muzzle of the weapon against the girl's forehead and said, Naomi, Seraphim, you were exquisite lovers, but you've got to be realistic. There's no way we can have a life together. Hey, who's there? Said the blind boy, who Junior had nearly forgotten. He turned from the cowering girl and studied the boy, who stood a few steps inside the room, holding a can of soda in each hand. The artificial eyes were convincing, but they didn't possess the knowing look that so troubled him and the strange girl. Junior pointed the pistol at the boy. Simon says your name's Bartholomew. Simon who? You don't look very threatening to me, blind boy. The child didn't reply. Is your name Bartholomew? Yes. Junior took two steps towards him, sighting the gun on his face. Why should I be afraid of a stumbling blind boy no bigger than a midget? I don't stumble. Not much, anyway. To the girl, Bartholomew said, Angel, are you okay? I'm going to have the trot, she said. Why should I be afraid of a stumbling blind boy, asked Junior again. But this time, the words issued from him in a different tone of voice, because suddenly, he sensed something knowing in this boy's attitude, if not in his manufactured eyes, a quality similar to what the girl exhibited. Because I'm a prodigy, Bartholomew said, and he threw the can of root beer. The can struck Junior hard in the face, breaking his nose before he could duck. Furious, he squeezed off two shots. 916-633. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. Passing the living room archway, Tom saw Jacob in the armchair, under the reading lamp slumped as if asleep over the book. His crimson bib confirmed that he wasn't just sleeping. Drawn by voices on the second floor, Tom took the stairs two at a time. A man and a boy, Barty and Kane, to the left in the hallway, and then to a room on the right. Heedless of the rules of standard police procedure, Tom raced to the doorway, crossed the threshold, and saw Barty throw a can of soda at the shaved head and pocked face of a transformed Enoch Kane. The boy fell and rolled even as he pitched the can, anticipating the shots that Kane fired, which cracked into the doorframe inches from Tom's knees. Raising his revolver, Tom squeezed off two shots, but the gun didn't discharge. Frozen firing pin, Kane said. His smile was venomous. I worked on it. I hoped you'd get here in time to see the consequences of your stupid games. Kane turned the pistol on Barty, but when Tom charged, Kane swung towards him once more. The round that he fired would have been a crippler, maybe even a killer. 
except the angel launched herself off the window seat behind Kane and gave him a hard shove, spoiling his aim. The killer stumbled and then shimmered. Gone. He vanished through some hole, some slit, some tear bigger than anything through which Tom flipped his quarters. Barty couldn't see, but somehow he knew. Whoa, Angel. I sent him someplace where we aren't, the girl explained. He was rude. Tom was stunned. So when did you learn you could do that? Just now. Although Angel tried to sound nonchalant, she was trembling. I'm not sure I could do it again. Until you are sure, be careful. Okay. Will he come back? She shook her head. No way back. She pointed to the sketch pad on the floor. I pushed him there. Tom stared at the girl's drawing. Quite a good one for a child her age. Rough in style, but with convincing detail. And if skin could be said to crawl... His must have moved all the way around his body two or three times before settling down again where it belonged. Are these? Big bugs, the girl said. Lots of them. Yeah, it's a bad place. Getting to his feet, Barty said, Hey, Angel? Yeah? You threw the pig yourself. I guess I did. Shaking with fear that had nothing to do with Junior Kane and flying bullets, or even with memories of Joseph Kreff and his vile necklace, Tom Vanadium closed the sketch pad and put it on the window seat. He opened the window, and in rushed the susurration of breeze-stirred oak leaves. He picked up Angel, picked up Barty. Hold on. He carried them out of the room, down the stairs, out of the house, to the yard under the great tree, where they will wait for the police, and where they would not see Jacob's body when the coroner removed it by way of the front door. Their story would be that Kane's gun had jammed just as Tom had entered Barty's bedroom. Too cowardly for hand-to-hand combat, the shame-faced slayer had fled through the open window. He was loose once more in an unsuspecting world. That last part was true. He just wasn't loose in this world anymore. And in the world to which he had gone, he would not find easy victims. Even the children under the tree, Tom returned to the house to phone the police. According to his wristwatch, the time was 9.05 in the morning on this momentous day. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Leave a review on Spotify, it takes like 13 seconds. You can also leave a review on Podchaser. You can leave a review on the Apple Podcasts, and you can also leave a review on the Good Pods app. Uh, you can donate to the show via patreon.com slash single simulcast, or at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast, or on the Good Pods app. You can leave a tip in the tip jar. Thank you so much for listening. you think it was over after that, but it ain't. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my name,